Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. As we enter this this first Sunday of Advent, the Lord just kind of impressed a, a passage that as we move through this season, I want to pray for us, uh, that as we move and celebrate our King that has come and our King that is coming, may Maybe in the spirit and the light of what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5. Hear these words. And so we urge you, church, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always rejoice. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And in this Christmas season, may we not quench the Holy Spirit. Father, as we're gathering in your presence and in the name of Christ, the King of kings, who came in a lowly manger, that came in humility, who came in weakness, so that through his death, Father, you might raise Jesus Christ in strength that we might have through Jesus and faith in the gospel, the newness of life and a spirit that dwells within us, a new mind, a new community, a new vision for life, a new hope and a new direction. And so, Father, as we celebrate this first advent of hope, may we live according to the hope that has captivated our hearts and our minds and would we move out to the season with grace And Father, with a truth that's anchored in the beauty of who Jesus is. Meet us here, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've got a bit of a, a theological debate, and I hate to start off with such great controversy, But there's a debate that's been waging for thousands and thousands of years, and the debate is, when can you play Christmas music? I mean, does, how much space does Thanksgiving really need? I mean, the Bible does call us to be thankful, to rejoice in all things, and so, you know, I know there are different camps, and and I don't want to uh, press press too hard and, and, and allow you to kind of expose your own position, but I know there are different camps. Some, some people say, you know, you cannot b- begin any sign, any symbol of Christmas until really the first Sunday in Advent, which is today. And there are others that say, no, Christmas uh, music, Christmas season, that it's year-round. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. June 1st, July 4th, I got Christmas music playing. And so actually on Tuesday night, you know, with the... Um, the coming of Thanksgiving, that was Tuesday, it's already passed, but um, I had a lot on my plate, and so I was here really late, and it just hit me. And our facilities manager, Steve Ramsey, already had put up the lights, and I said, it's time to turn them on. It's time to turn them on. So since, since uh, November 23rd, uh, Tuesday, November 23rd, we've been proclaiming the light of Christ uh, to Evergreen, and so if you're an after-Thanksgiving guy, I just need to let you know where I stand um, <laughs> That's where we are. That's where we are at Bergen Park Church. But anyways. But hey, it's, um, it's great to see you guys here this morning. Uh, we're glad you've gathered with us on this, uh, this first Sunday in Advent. And I love this Christmas season. And one of the things I love about this season 
is the echoes of eternity that ring forth in the Christmas celebration and really in the winter season itself. You know, it's kind of odd when you think of Christmas and what the message of Christmas is. It's the story of darkness that becomes light. It's the story of hopelessness and hope. It's the story of lost and then found. It's the story of broken and restored. So it's a story from dark into light. But the, the story of winter, at least in the Western Hemisphere, is the story of light to dark. That when you think of this Christmas season, it really the story of Jesus and the story of winter are very, very different. And yet, so much of our culture picks up this story of not from light to dark, but really from dark to light. You look at the movies that we watch, uh, Buddy the Elf. What is that story about? It's about really dark to light. He goes to find his father. He finds his father. His father's not who he expects him to be, and yet his father is transformed. He's changed. His new family begins. You think of the Christmas story. He does get the red rider BB gun with a scope and a thing that tells time. It's from dark to light. Kevin McAllister, he's left behind. Family's disconnected. The family comes back, reunited. It's dark to light. George Bailey, George Bailey takes his life. He's going to take his life. What happens? His angel comes to him. It's a story from dark to light. Our culture naturally picks up this theme that comes from the story of Jesus and the story of the gospel, the story of Advent, which is a story of God coming into the darkness and bringing light. And that's where we're gonna go in Isaiah chapter two. The book of Isaiah, really, most of the early chapters of Isaiah are pretty dark. It's Isaiah pronouncing judgment on the nations because they're rebelling against God. And he says, listen, this is what's gonna happen if you don't turn, if you don't repent, if you don't allow your heart to be captivated by, by the goodness and the glory of God, this is what's going to happen. But in the midst of that, you come to Isaiah chapter two and there's this ray of light, this ray of sunshine, this, this beautiful picture of what will happen when the Messiah, the King comes and sets right everything that sin had set wrong. Because see, God had created a world in which Adam and Eve were to be naked and unashamed. Now, that has nothing to do with being naked. It has everything to do with the condition of the human heart before God and before others. That there was to be nothing to hide. In our relationships with each other and our relationship with God, there should be nothing to hide because God completely covers us, and in his covering, we can love one another as we love ourselves. There's freedom, there's purity, there's hope, there's joy. That's what God created the world to be. But sin comes in, and what happens is darkness. And with darkness, we try to grab rays of light to cover ourselves, to make ourselves feel okay. We don't admit that things are broken. We don't admit when our marriage is broken, our relationships are broken, our desires are broken. No, what do we do? We just grab a bigger fig leaf and to try to cover up that shame and nakedness. But what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to address God's people because in Isaiah chapter 2, the people of, of God and Judah and Israel, they were chasing after everything the nations wanted. And they said, hey, why don't we join into the same pursuits? The nations look strong, the nations look good, whether it's consumerism or nationalism, whether it's their own particular politics or the powers of the world. The nation of Israel is much more captivated by the world than by God. And that's why Isaiah is saying, listen, guys, if your heart and the story of your life is capped up in the captured by the story of the world, it's going to lead to destruction. Not because God's gonna come in and destroy it, but, but because that narrative can't sustain the weight of your life. And so in Isaiah chapter two, he's talking about what's going to happen when the advent, which means the coming of the king arrives and how it's going to captivate the world and the nations and turn the hearts of God's people back to the king and back to their God. So let's jump into it. You guys ready? 
It's kind of a challenging passage. I mean, Isaiah chapter two is not typically a place that people go, so I felt like you guys could handle it. So let's, let's try. Let's see, let's see how this works out. Isaiah chapter two, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So here's a prophecy of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And he's describing the latter days, which is the time in which the Messiah, the king, would come and set right what sin had made wrong. So verse two. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And notice all the nations are going to come to it. And many people are going to come. Many people are going to come and they're going to say, hey, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he, meaning this king, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Now nation will no longer lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, O people of God, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. So in the midst of this hopeless picture, Isaiah is saying there's hope. In the midst of darkness, and if you think of John chapter one, if you've read that, the people walking in darkness have seen, you know, they've seen a great light, but they didn't understand it. The light comes into the world, but those to whom the light comes, they rejected the light. Why? Because we are much more attracted to the darkness. We know it better. And see, that's what Isaiah is describing. When you go to verses seven and eight, he's describing out of the hearts of the people, they're really given over to the desires that are just filling the world. So look, at, look down in verse seven, and it says, here's, here's where Israel is. Here's where God's people are. And maybe, maybe in some ways this could describe possibly where we are today, that there are gods in our culture, in our society, that are much more beautiful and attractive much more at the center of what we want than what God can accomplish. So watch this. It says their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures and their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols and so they're bowing down their hearts, their minds, their emotions, their money, their family, their work, their time, their energy to what their own fingers have made. Verses seven and eight is describing from God's perspective what's captivating the heart of God's people. And it's the same stuff that captivates us. They're worshiping what they can create, consumerism. I'm gonna take God out, I'm gonna replace God with the stuff that I can make. I'm gonna replace him with wealth and accomplishment. I'm gonna replace him with beauty and success. It's individualism. I can become what I want to become. I can make myself who I need to be. I don't need God, I don't need anyone else. It's nationalism. 
You know, what we need is not humble, repentant people that pursue a humble and repentant God who is a lamb and yet is a lion. No, what we need is military might. We need political alliances. We gotta grab the Assyrians. We gotta grab the nations of the earth. We gotta grab the Egyptians and we gotta get power into this place so that we can overcome what is wrong with the means that men overcome what, what is wrong. With, what do they use, swords? They use violence. What he's describing is all these false stories that are captivating God's people and they're more powerful than the story of the God who has rescued them, created them, and love them. But when you look down in verse two, what he's gonna say is there's something that's gonna happen that's going to allow these false narratives to fail. Now, they're already failing, and we know they fail. Consumerism fails, individualism fails, nationalism fails. It fails. Progressivism fails. It cannot sustain the weight of our lives. Now, it may sustain us for a little while, may make us happy for a little while, but eventually what's gonna happen is it can't sustain the weight for which God has put into our heart, the void that he's put into our life that should be set on God alone. It can't, it can't hold our lives. And so what's gonna happen in verse two is Isaiah's gonna prophesy and he says, listen, God is going to violently rip these false stories out of your life. And here's how he's gonna do it. Watch verse two. And it shall come to pass in the latter days when the Messiah will come that the mountain of the house of the Lord, it shall be established as the highest of mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations. Notice all the nations are gonna come to it. Now Jerusalem is built on a hill. That's what he's describing. The temple in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, it's on a hill. And in ancient times they thought the higher you are, the holier you are. We still kind of think that today. If you've gone to Everest, I mean, you're something. If you've gone to Bergen Peak, this is a nice hike. <laughs> but the idea is the higher you are, the holier you are. So when you think back to the book of Genesis, what do they do? Hey, let's make a name for ourselves. How? Let's get up to the gods. By our hands, by our success, by what we can create, we can be so significant and so valuable, so beautiful, so glorious that we can do what God can do. And so that's what they did. They built this tower of the skies. And so in the Old Testament, what would happen when God's people would repent and turn back to him, they'd often go to the high places. And what did they find? What they find at the high places, all these poles, all these worship, all these idols, and they would take it down and then they would repent and turn to their God. Because the idea is the higher you are, the closer you are to God. God's using that metaphor, that image, and saying when the Messiah comes back, he's going to be lifted up and all men are going to be drawn to him. He's going to be the highest of mountains. Bergen Peak is suddenly violently going to become Mount Everest its glory, its majesty, its beauty, its law, its truth is gonna shine out over the lands and all the false narratives and false stories, all the things that are building, their, people are building their lives upon and laying down as a foundation for life, they're gonna crumble in the light of the glory of this God who is coming, this Messiah, this King. And all these false narratives will cease to have the impact that they once has. That's, that's the promise that Isaiah is making that suddenly when the king comes, there'll be this great repentance and the nations will come to him. Now, one of the things that has been, at least for me, so troubling over this, this last year is how some of the cultural stories, the stories like consumerism, the stories like nationalism, individualism, how those stories are so deeply embedded, not in our culture, but in the church how the stories of our own culture seem much more important and we're much more passionate about whether it's our political story or political leaders 
or our vision of how things should go. We are much more passionate about those things to the extent that we obscure those things with the things of God themselves, and we call them one and the same. It's the same tragedy that was happening in the nation of Israel. And, And let's be honest, I mean, it's come out in the last election, both in the left and in the right. And how we have built up these political ideologies that's, that, that mirrors worship in Scripture. That we've so raised up leaders and raised up ideologies with such passion that it sounds almost as similar to the way that, that people describe their love and pursuit of God. And to question it is to bring such condemnation, judgment, and, and a sense of own personal righteousness. There is this great Great false stories that are penetrating the church and influencing us. And the greatest story of all is the secular story. You know, we live in a very Western world, and the secular story is the dominant story in our culture. And here's what the secular story will say. The secular story may say God doesn't exist, or if God does exist, God really doesn't matter. You don't need God. And God is not the source of meaning and significance. Instead, what you need to do is go out into the marketplace, find something to replace God with, and that's where you're going to find meaning, value, and significance. Now, here's an example. I went down to Safeway, King Supers. You find these Advent calendars, right? Advent is about the advent and arrival of Jesus. Not anymore. What's Advent about? The coming of Christmas. The coming of Santa. The coming of candy. You open the little window, there's a little toy. Lego's got it. Barbie's got it. Disney's got it. It's Advent. What does the secular culture do? The secular culture says, let's take God out. God isn't the source of meaning and significance and value. You don't need a king. You don't need someone to set you right. You don't need a savior. You can be your own savior. And put something in its place. The thing that we often turn to is consumerism. I mean, in our culture, let's be honest, and we're all in it. We're all swimming in it. There's nobody in this room that's not swimming in a consumeristic culture. We're there. You guys look good. You understand it. And consumerism says you can take God out and you can put in his place what you've acquired, what you've accomplished. They are status symbols. You know, I used to look at the story of the golden calf and think how stupid until I got a a car and then I saw a better car until I got a house and then I saw a better golden calf, until I went on vacation and you told me about a better vacation. All of that is is this idea that if I have it, if I experience it, if I possess it, I've got value. What is that? It's a false story. It's a false narrative. It's what Israel was attracted to. It's what the church is so often attracted to, that we've replaced God. And listen, it's not just in the secular story. It's in the church. It's in the church. There is a huge gathering of people within the church, even that sometimes come to worship, that are non-practicing Christians. What's a non-practicing Christian? A non-practicing Christian is one who identifies as a Christian, but their meaning, their passion, their pursuit in life comes from something else other than the story that God's given us. It's one of the stories in our culture. And we're more passionate about that story. I mean, you can defame God, but don't defame their politics. You can defame God, but don't defame their house or their business or whatever they have. If you speak against that, you're going to find wrath. 
because that's where they find meaning, significance, and value. And they don't look like the things of Christ or the gospel. They don't look like the Sermon on the Mount. They don't look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because see, that comes from a heart that's centered on God and grounded in the story of God. And Isaiah's saying, watch out. When the Messiah comes, all the false stories will, will, will fall. They'll fall. Here's another, another story, I think, in our culture that so often captivates us. It's the idea that meaning is found in your personal freedoms. Meaning is found in your personal expression. It's the premise that is behind individualism. And individualism will say, life is worth living and life is meaningful when there are no constraints on my desires and no constraints on my life. If I can just be me without correction, without any accountability, without anyone speaking, if my desires could just be expressed and fulfilled without any resistance, that's where meaning is found. What does individualism do? It takes God out. It puts the desire of the individual at the center. Is that a part of our culture? Absolutely. Here's another. Meaning is found in my political allegiances, my belief that my version of the country is the hope for the world. That's called nationalism. And again, the far left and the far right, they both have their own stories, their own way of describing it, but it's taking God out of the story. It's putting a political allegiance and a national identity at the center. And it looks patriotic, but it doesn't look like Christ. Here's another. Meaning is found in what I accomplish. Meaning is found in what I can build with my hands, how I can better myself or better the world around me. That is the story of progressivism, or optimism. This is the story of which I can better myself, but the story of individualism, I can better myself because I have everything in me to change myself. I just got to find it. You know that? I just got to look deeper. I don't know where you look. What if you're an onion, right? <laughs> you get down in the middle and there's nothing there. But individualism says, I don't need a God. I don't need truth. I don't need people. I don't, I don't need, I can change myself. I can become who I want to become. It is a message that influences us. It influences the church. And I think the reality we have seen over the last two years is all of those narratives fall short. They cannot sustain the weight of our lives. And we find so often in, in the world when tragedy and difficulty and hardship strikes, we run to one of those things. We don't run to the light, to the hope, because see, when you run to the hope and the light, you gotta be weak. You gotta surrender. You gotta admit you need him. You gotta confess, you gotta repent. You gotta say, Lord, I can't do this. I need your power to become perfect in my weakness. But see, we, we don't do that. Rather, we run to addiction and we run to the things of the world to build us up, to give us an identity, saying when the Messiah comes, those messages should fall. And so watch what he says as we jump back in. That's kind of the big storyline that's tying us to what's happening in, in Isaiah 2 in Israel. So watch what's gonna happen in verse three. Many people shall come and they'll say, hey, let's go up to this mountain of the Lord because the Messiah's come. He's been raised up. His beauty, his glory shines over all things. Let's go to the house of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, this Messiah will come and he will give us truth. He'll give us the Sermon on the Mount. He'll give us a new way of being human, a new way of flourishing. He'll give us a new vision of who God is. A God who is the good shepherd, a God who loves us, a God who loves us unconditionally that's willing to take our brokenness upon himself so that we could experience his peace, his joy, his goodness. This Messiah will come and he will give us truth. We've seen it. 
And the reality is we've seen the outcome of this because the nations have come. You know, right now, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel's being sung all across the world in different languages. Why? Because this has been fulfilled. This Messiah came, and what happened is the nations came, the wise men came, the Gentiles came, those that were in North America. Do you realize how far North America was from Jesus when he came? Church, you are the ends of the earth. The first people to respond to the gospel didn't look like us. Some of us, some of us got a little bit of it, but most of us don't. This is the ends of the earth. What Isaiah is prophesying as Jesus Christ has come, has been raised and lifted up, it's hit us. It's our story. But watch what happens. He takes it beyond that, and he says in verse 4, it's not just going to impact us individually. It's going to impact all of creation. He says, and this Messiah will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, this is where darkness and light in our day becomes a little cloudy. Because I can understand the first half of Isaiah's prophecy and the coming of the king and, and his glory being raised up, but I don't see this happening today. I mean, do you think Isaiah may have gotten it wrong? I think we're still training for war. I still see nation rising up against nation. I still see oppression and injustice. I still see the isms and the false stories of the world becoming a false righteousness by which others judge one another instead of by a righteousness that comes from God and is through Jesus and by faith and grace and what he has done. We continue to hold up light that is darkness. And we don't necessarily see this outcome. So how do you deal with a passage like this? On the one hand, we see some aspects that are true, and we've experienced them ourselves, but where does this message of peace and harmony, where do we see that in our land? The reality is we don't. Because you and I live between the advents. See, as we celebrate Advent, it means the coming, the arrival. Jesus Christ has arrived. Is he king? Yes, he is. But church, can I tell you, his coronation was to a cross. And yours is too. That's why the stories of the nations are so powerful because they don't lead to a cross. If you're gonna find your life, you gotta lose it. You've gotta lose it. You've gotta surrender. You've gotta submit. That's the, the story of the nations. The story of the nations is succeed, be powerful, be effective. The story of the gospel is surrender, submit. Allow my power to work through you. Reflect what I've done on the cross. Jesus Christ is the king, but the way he showed his kingdom was through self-sacrifice. That's how we live today. In the midst of the two comings, we look at it in the world, and, and what theologians will call this is the already, not yet. That already what Isaiah has prophesied, it's, it's true. It's happened. Each one of us has a story of already. We've heard the gospel. We've seen his restoring power. We've seen people healed. We have seen restoration. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen churches brought back together. We've seen people healed. We've seen people go out into the world and do tremendous things in the name of Christ, building hospitals and schools, starting nonprofits and caring for the poor, caring for the sick, caring for the nations. We've seen it happen. And then again, we see the nations gathering to Jesus, that all across the world, there are millions of people coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptized and they're following after Christ. We see the fulfillment of what Christ has done. But we want more, don't we? We want more. 
Because though we live in the already, and, and I see that weekly, I see men and women who are, who are fighting for their marriages and trying to put Jesus at the center. They're fighting in their own business to put Christ at the center in their finances and their life and their pursuits. They want Jesus to shine. They want him to be central and they're pursuing. That's the already, but the not yet is, doesn't always work out. The not yet is the reality that I know so many brothers and sisters that haven't experienced that healing, that long to be healed, that long to be restored, that are afraid of the brokenness of their own body, and they crawl out to Christ, and Christ in that physical healing may not come. Though spiritually they are alive to him, physically they may not be. And though we can pray and we can pursue, and though we can share the gospel with others, sometimes people don't respond. Sometimes they actually respond the other way, right? They persecute, they hate, they despise. Jesus said those things would come. Because, church, you live between the advents. You live between the coming. You're holy in God's sight, but you're not holy in our sight. (laughs) There is brokenness in us and addiction. There are false stories that captivate us. There are false gods that seep into our hearts and to our minds. And that's what Isaiah is describing, saying, listen, the king's gonna come. He's gonna be raised up like Mount Everest as if Bergen Peak became Mount Ezra. You'd see it, you'll glorify in it, and yet you're gonna want more of it. As the great theologian said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now go read that song. What's he talking about? Go read the song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He says, I believe when the kingdom comes, then all colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But I want more. I've tasted it. I've seen it. Paul said it this way. He says, not that I've already obtained all these things. Listen, I haven't already been made perfect. I've tasted it. But one thing I do, one thing I do. Actually, I skipped a a part I press on to make, make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heaven, word in Christ Jesus. I'm taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's the advents. That's why we celebrate in this season. And so what do we need to live between the advents, between the first coming and the second coming? What we need is Isaiah chapter two, verse five. You notice what he said, where the hope is found? O house of Jacob, as you're walking in darkness, as the false stories and the narratives of the worlds are captivating your heart, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, walking in the light, it's It's frightening. You know, it's only in the light that sin gets exposed. Do you realize the contrast that that he's described? It's only when you go to Christ and you're in the light that he can see you and he can expose it. But in being exposed, you're exposed. And you've got to ask yourself, what am I going to cover myself with? What am I going to run to? Where is my hope? Is it going to be the narrative and the stories of the world? Is it going to be me being strong in my own might and strength? Am I going to look to the powers of the world or my own hands? No, I've got to look to Christ. The story of Advent is the story that we are but created, but rebellious creation that has turned our hearts from the Father. And he has laid on his son, his Messiah, his king, the rightful coronation that should have fallen on us, the cross, it should have come on us, but it came on him and he was raised on the third day so that through faith in what Jesus has done, we are given a new heart with new desires, but we have to continue to look into the light to purify what's in the heart. 
Advent is about looking into the light. It's about looking into the light with honesty and transparency so that we don't have to run and hide in shame any longer. We don't have to take up fig leaves to protect ourselves from one another and certainly don't need to do that before our God. But the more we allow the light and the truth of who God is to come in and listen, not to work on all the people around you or the world around you, but to work on you, to transform you, to expose you, to cause you to see that you're pretending so often. We spend so much energy trying to project to the rest of the world that we're okay. We're not okay. It's called the doctrine of sin. It means you're not okay. You need a savior. You need a redeemer. I'm not okay. The last two years have been hard. I want to confess. Before I got up here today, I was in my office in tears. I was just in tears because I feel in my own heart just a recognition of how much I need the Lord in my life. How what we do as Christians is not something we can do in our own strength or in our own power. We need him. And the advent of Christmas is that advent of recognizing how desperately we need him. Where are you trying to be strong in your own abilities? Where can you surrender him and say, Spirit, Father, would you allow the King of kings, the Lord of lords, would you allow the story of the gospel to be my story? As we celebrate communion, I hope you grab the elements as, as we came in. They're available in the back. They're also up here available in the front. I want to give you a moment just to grab, grab those, those elements. And as we receive them, it's important for us to, to take that, that story of what Christ has done and to go with a reflective heart and say to the, the Father, Father, would you search me and know me? Would you... See if there's any wicked way in me, Father, if there's, there's an area in my life where I'm not allowing light to come in because I'm just kind of saying, no, no, I, I want light here and here, but this isn't, I'm not going to allow you to shine your light in these areas. Would you allow the Spirit just to reveal those, those things, those areas in your life where you need to surrender and you need to submit? And then after we spend a little time in, in prayer, I'll um, lead us together. Let's go to the Father. Father, you say the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The darkness runs from the light. Father, in Jesus' name, may we stop running. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to stand in the, in the fullness of God's glory and the power of his might and the grace of the gospel and the forgiving, washing, redeeming power of our Savior and allow him to cleanse us for the shame or the guilt or the brokenness or the rebellion that is in our heart. Father, would you come through your grace and truth? And I pray in the power of the Spirit, the darkness as the light advances would begin to flee. Expose the darkness in us, Father. Not just the darkness in the world, but the darkness in us so that we might be agents of light in the coming of Christ and in the celebration of what, what he has brought.
We need you, Father. We need you, Father. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave thanks and he said, take and eat for this is my body which is broken for you. Receive it together in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it represents the new covenant, the new promise that is established in my blood. Let us receive it together in remembrance of him.